Welcome to the podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. My name is Minnie Baragwanath, and this series is based on my book by the same name. Blindingly Obvious is my story. It is a candid and deeply personal story about my life and work as a blind woman, social entrepreneur, and innovator. I wrote it in order to share my experience of blindness with others and in the hope that it might raise awareness and invite others to actively create a more accessible future, one that is full of possibility. A wonderful voiceover artist and now friend of mine, Romy Hooper, has narrated my full book, all 24 chapters. I do so hope you enjoy listening. It is an absolute pleasure to be able to share it with you. 11. An eye-opening experience. I completely fell in love with New York when we filmed the marathon in 1998. The city had an energy unlike any other I had ever visited. It felt alive. It pulsated, it breathed, and it roared. Steam poured out of vents in the pavement, releasing pent-up energy from the underground trains. Yellow taxis beeped irritably at anyone and anything. It was just like in the movies, and people showed up in the fullest spectrum of humanity, from utterly glamorous to creative and outrageous, to broken and downtrodden. I decided then and there that I would find a way to come back to live and work in New York. What I did not realize then was just how many times throughout my life I would return to this fascinating, dynamic and wonderful city. New York was under my skin, and it was shaping me and my future in ways I could never have imagined. It is easy to assume that living with an impairment or disability mostly results in lost opportunities and closed doors. However, I was now fully aware that while this is one side of what had happened to me, there is another side, and that is one of powerful and unexpected opportunity. For myself, I now know the key to living well with an impairment is to feel the unique and unmistakable energy of an opportunity, to bravely recognize it, and to cherish it with both hands when it appears. And, of course, to be prepared to take a chance, because who knows exactly how it will work out or where it will lead you next. I have wondered at times if there is a slightly masochistic side to my personality. I wonder why I'm not happy with just taking the simple and easy path in life, whatever that is. I wonder why I must always push myself to rediscover where the limits and boundaries might now be. Is it blind faith? Is it stupidity? Is it denial that makes me keep on taking the hardest route imaginable? Or perhaps it is a deep curiosity about what is possible in life. Today I try to see this part of myself through a more generous lens, the lens of with. I am with my life when I operate with a combination of deep trust and deep intuition. I can feel when I'm being called to do something, I can feel when I know that I need to take another step. I just know when it is time to turn another corner or to take another path, even if all logic and good sense seems to state the opposite. So often, whether it was going to university at 16, establishing New Zealand's first espresso coffee caravan, following a career in the highly visual medium of television, leaving a secure job to establish a social change organisation, or most recently, leaving that job to write a book, what might appear to others to be counterintuitive or risky has been the best path for me to take. This is how I, 
Mini, Stargazer, Navigate My Life and the World. I listen deeply to what feels right in my heart and soul. This, by the way, is absolutely not to be confused with what is easy. In fact, each new turn I tend to take is usually about stepping up or shaking things up and doing something entirely out of my comfort zone. And this is how, a year after my first trip to New York, I found myself on a plane on my way back to this gorgeous city to live and work as a volunteer for the Achilles Foundation head office in Manhattan. My new home was in Brooklyn. A wonderful expat New Zealander, Vandra, who was an old friend of Peter Loft's and a supporter of Achilles, offered me a place to stay. Vandra was a delight. She was incredibly caring, warm-hearted and funny. She had a fabulous old three-storied New York stone house in a part of Brooklyn that was not exactly gentrified at the time. She and a friend had purchased the house together and each lived in half a house. In order to supplement her mortgage, Vandra had a string of flatmates. During my stay with her, there were three of us at any one time. I initially started off sleeping in her lounge, which, looking back, must have been such an inconvenience for her. Personally, I cannot imagine so generously offering the same in my home today, unless under very extreme circumstances. However, after some months, I then moved into her basement below street level. While this gave us both some privacy, it was windowless and very dark, not to mention somewhat chilly in the middle of a New York winter. Much like my time several years before in Japan, I would catch multiple trains to work every day. My office was in the heart of Manhattan. The big difference this time was that I was now in an English-speaking country and I could ask someone if I got lost or forgot to count the stations accurately. I felt very aware coming home at night that I was blind, as there was a definitely dodgy vibe in the hood where we lived. I recall feeling as if my ears were stretched to absolute capacity trying to listen out for any unusual sounds or anything that might suggest I could be in danger. I tried my best to not look out of place or look blind. Nothing bad ever did happen to me, but I was on high alert once again. While Japan had never felt dangerous, part of New York's attraction was in fact its edginess. One day, I'd just missed by a matter of minutes being caught up in a fatal shooting as I walked to work. I could hear the gunshots just behind me as I turned the corner to the Achilles office. On the news that night, we heard three people had been killed. Being an international organisation, Achilles attracted people and volunteers from all around the world and across the USA to work for it. I was on a small stipend that was just enough money to pay Vandra some board and to enable me to eat and travel around the city. What more could I need at this point in my life? Looking back, I used to survive on a very small amount of money in my 20s and 30s. I was always volunteering or operating on a government subsidy for disabled employees or some such thing. I would do whatever it took to get experience. Certainly it took me many years to earn a decent wage, and, dare I say it, to feel worthy of it. I was always just so incredibly grateful that someone would employ me, whatever form that took. I have certainly had many long, hard periods where I was totally unable to find work. Something that affected me profoundly in New York was the extreme poverty and the number of homeless people on the streets.
I was not accustomed to seeing this in little old New Zealand in the 1990s, although it is sadly becoming more common today. I noticed, too, that many of the homeless people had impairments and disabilities. I soon discovered that the reason for this was the fact that much of America's homeless population is made up of injured war veterans. I was also horrified to learn that although our welfare system in New Zealand was not perfect, it was far superior to that in America. Most people had little, if any, financial support. This exposed me to structural disablement and discrimination on a massive scale, and I was deeply shocked. It was hard for me to reconcile how a nation that had, on the one hand, created the Progressive Americans with Disability Act, could also be so archaic and inhumane on the other. My eyes were now being opened well and truly to the reality of life in the Big Apple. One of my favourite jobs each week with Achilles was to run exercise classes for groups of extremely dynamic, elderly New York citizens. Well, what a fantastic experience. This was definitely how I wanted to grow old. Two or three of us would go to different parts of the city and meet up with groups of elderly people in a rec centre or public facility. My colleague, Jose, would turn the boombox up loud and blast out 70s disco music. We would supposedly lead the class with some form of gentle exercise routine, but more often than not, it just morphed into an ad-lib dance class. The fabulous groovy older women all wanted to dance with the young, good-looking Jose. One incredible and very feisty woman, who must have been well into her 80s, told me she had been a dressmaker all her life. She had ultimately become a dressmaker for several well-known singers, including the one and only soul singer, Lena Horne. Another unique group Achilles supported and worked with in preparing for the marathon was a local New York group called the Gunrunners. This was the perfect name for this group of guys because they were all survivors of gun injuries. They had usually been in gangs at some stage or had been just in the wrong place at the wrong time and ended up with a disability as a result of their gunshot injuries. Many were paraplegic. Every week, these guys would get together and train for the marathon in November. I soon realised what a powerful and transformative role Achilles was performing in people's lives throughout New York, but also throughout the world. How else could I have managed to be living and working in New York, if not for the vision and leadership of Dick Trom, the founder of Achilles many years before? How else could a young blind woman have found herself with this kind of support, to live and work in one of the most incredible cities in the world. By all accounts, it had certainly not been easy to get the very conventional New York Roadrunners, the club that operated the marathon, to agree to letting disabled athletes take part. In fact, it had taken years of lobbying and the support of some very influential and wealthy friends of Dick's to enable this to occur. Like so many sporting events, Marathons had for so long been the exclusive, protected bastion of the perfect, able-bodied male athlete. All very Aryan, really. Today it is impossible to imagine the marathon without all its rich diversity. This definitely was social change in action, and I had the privilege of watching and learning about how it was done, through the world of sport, and directly from Dick himself. I certainly learned the power of having influential people walking alongside you when on a mission to drive change. 
This was something we drew on when we set up the Fab 50 network of influential New Zealand Access champions, many years later. Dick was an amazing leader, who refused to take no as an answer. Hmm, that sounds a wee bit familiar. On this note of stubborn determination, I had some unfinished business with the marathon. Due to my untimely snowboarding accident the year before, I had of course ended up walking most of the course. This time, I was determined to run the entire thing. Being based in New York, I was able to train regularly in the months leading up to the marathon around Central Park with other runners from Achilles. One afternoon, I was training with a group of runners when I decided to run to the end of the training course on my own. They were all running really slowly, and I wanted to maintain my speed unencumbered. Dusk falls quite quickly in New York in autumn, and all of a sudden I realised I was lost and alone in the middle of Central Park. I had somehow miscalculated the route out that I thought I knew so well. I could feel the familiar feeling of panic rising inside me. I had heard so many stories about Central Park at night, and I was now feeling extremely vulnerable and extremely blind with my poor night vision. Strange noises were coming from the park's nighttime inhabitants, and I was now genuinely frightened. After quite some time of wandering around, wondering what on earth I was going to do, I finally saw some lights ahead and followed them until I came out the other side of the park, miles from where I had entered, but safe and in vaguely familiar territory again. Phew. This time, when it came time to run the marathon, I was matched with not one buddy, but, wait for it, five. I was assigned five ophthalmologists from New York University to be my sighted guides. Flanked by my group of bodyguards, I honestly felt as if I was the president. They each wore black t-shirts, much like the ones we also wore, being New Zealanders, of course. They ran surrounding me on all sides. However, by the end, most of them had given up as they were too tired, and it was just me and the lead ophthalmologist who crossed the finish line together. I had my first name pinned to my shirt, and all the way along, people would call out, Go Minnie! Go Minnie! in unmistakably gorgeous New York accents. What I was not so keen on was at the beginning of the run, when my ophthalmologists called out, Watch out! Blind runner coming through! I soon put a stop to that. I will never forget the incredible feeling of elation when I crossed the finish line to a recording of the one and only Frank Sinatra singing New York, New York over the loud sound system. I had done it. I had run and completed a marathon in under four and a half hours. Not bad, really. My work visa and temporary stint working with Achilles was running out, and I needed to either find more work or return home. I had mentioned to a friend of Dick's that I would love to stay on in New York, but I was hoping to find work in the media or in something aligned with my study and work experience back in New Zealand. Dick's friend introduced me to a well-known media personality to see what opportunities might be available. We free-ranged over many topics during our lunch together. This included, for some random reason, the story that had hit the headlines, not just in New Zealand, as it turned out, about Peter Plumley Walker and his untimely death in the Hooker Falls near Taupo, following a sex act gone wrong. We wrapped up, and my new friend offered to let me know if he heard of any work opportunities. 
After several extraordinary months living and working in New York, visiting many iconic New York landmarks, including the Guggenheim, the Chrysler Building, and the Twin Towers, as well as running the marathon for a second time, I headed home with my expired visa. I tried to settle back into life in little old Auckland. Then one day, I got the surprise of my life when Peter Loft phoned me to say that the man I had met in New York, the media personality, wanted to shout me a full expenses paid trip back to New York later that same year. Well, what was a girl to say other than yes? While others expressed their concerns and reservations about his motivation, I took his generous offer at face value. He said he wanted to send me to see the top ophthalmologists in the USA to see if there was anything they could do to improve my eyesight. So I soon trustingly returned for the third time in three years to New York City, this time as the guest of my new friend. New York is a city of extremes, and I now realise that while on the one hand there were people living in abject poverty, homeless and on the streets of New York, there were also those living the absolute high life in gorgeous decadent apartments, sometimes overlooking the stunning trees of Central Park. And the latter is where I now found myself. Goodness, I really had landed on my feet, and as it turned out, in more ways than one. My new host was a wonderful man, interesting, funny, worldly, and extremely hospitable. His apartment stretched across several floors of a classic old, airy uptown building. Midsummer in New York is very hot, so like a good Kiwi lass, I wandered barefoot around his beautiful wooden floors. I didn't give this a second thought. We went out to dinner at the best restaurants and visited all sorts of sites throughout the city. He was an absolute gentleman. And true to his word, he did also arrange for me to have a series of appointments with top New York ophthalmologists. Towards the end of my appointment with one specialist, who was a very good friend of my host, a strange thing happened. As he gave me some new glasses to try out as a bit of an experiment, the specialist said, You seem like the kind of girl who is up for anything. Well, as far as I was aware, I had done nothing to suggest I was or was not that type of girl. I was perplexed. I was very grateful for his expert medical opinion, but I felt uncomfortable about his tone, his extremely unprofessional parting comments, and the look he gave me as I turned and left his office. I felt self-conscious and not at all keen to return. On my last evening at my host's apartment, we went out for dinner, as we had done many times over the last couple of weeks. In the middle of our meal, he said, You know, Minnie, there is no such thing in life as a free lunch. But you have just had a free lunch. I looked at him and wondered what on earth he was going to say next. Then, in usual Minnie style, I started to giggle. I actually thought, OMG, he is going to ask me to marry him. But no, I could not have been more wrong. Instead, he said, Minnie, I've had so much pleasure looking at your bare feet as you have wandered around my apartment these last few days. That has been payment enough. It turns out my lovely, kind host had a particular penchant for feet. Now, the thing about this from my perspective is that of all my body parts, my feet are not my best feature. 
but I guess beauty, as they say, is in the eye of the beholder. I am sure I could actually feel my feet blushing. If only I had got a pedicure before I left New Zealand. Suddenly, everything fell into place. I now understood the ophthalmologist's comments. My innocent conversation all those months earlier over lunch, where I had quite casually and openly contributed to the discussion about Peter Plumley Walker, had been taken to mean so much more. Well, what a perfectly New York way to end my time in this fascinating and endlessly surprising city. While my vision might not have improved, my eyes were definitely wide open now. I do so hope you enjoyed listening to my book and podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. It has been an absolute privilege to be able to share this with you. Listen out for the next chapter coming soon. If you would like to purchase the entire book in audio or an array of other accessible formats, including New Zealand Sign Language, or to learn more about my work, visit my website, minib.co.nz. Thank you for taking the time to listen and to be with me. See you next time. With love, Mini B.